Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat interviews Christian scholar Dr. Oz Guinness on his recent work, A Free People's Suicide. Dr. Guinness presents several factors that lead to a nation's downfall and gives a stern warning to our nation and the Christian church that we would be wise to heed. Let's join Pat now in his interview with Dr. Oz Guinness. Welcome to Evidence and Answers, the show that provides reasons for faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And with us this week is a very special guest, Dr. Oz Guinness. Dr. Oz Guinness is an author and social critic. Dr. Guinness was born in China in World War II, where both his parents and grandparents were medical missionaries. And his grandfather had the privilege of treating the last emperor of the imperial family of China. Dr. Oz Guinness was uh, the movie The Last Emperor. I think that was based partially on records or testimony of your family there? No, no, no. no. I kind of had nothing to do with that film. It was an Italian film by Bertolucci, but it was very interesting. You may have seen there's a film out now called Back to 1942, which is actually by Tim Robbins and some others, about the story of the Hernan famine in which three million died in just a few months, including my two brothers. I was there. Wow. Well, we'll have to do a show on that someday. Well, after receiving his doctorate, he was a freelance reporter for the BBC. He then served as a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and then a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. And he was the lead drafter of the Williamsburg Charter, celebrating the genius of the First Amendment and setting out the signer's vision of a civil public. He founded the Trinity Forum in 1991 and was the senior fellow there until 2004 conducting seminars for leaders around the world. Oz has been a frequent speaker and seminar leader at political and business conferences in both Europe and the United States. He has addressed audiences from the British House of Commons to the United States Congress to the St. Petersburg Parliament to the Chinese Academy of the Social Sciences, some of the most influential leaders of the world he has spoken to. So it's a great privilege for us to have Dr. Oz Guinness with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. My pleasure to be with you. Well, we're talking about your book here, A Free People's Suicide here. A very important book for our times, I believe. Tell me, how did you come up with the title of the book, and why did you need to write this book? Well, the title goes back to Abraham Lincoln. People hear the word suicide, and they immediately think the book must be depressing. But Lincoln says, in the quotations on the cover, as a nation of free men... We must either live free through all time or die by suicide. In other words, strong, free people bring themselves down. They're not brought down by their enemies. Now, if you go back, why did I write it? If you want to understand America, and I'm European, of course, I'm not American, St. Augustine put it rather interestingly. You don't look at the size of the population or the strength of the army or the GDP or something like that. You look at what he called its loved things held in common. What does a nation 
love supremely and see how that is doing. Now, there's no question that what America loves supremely is freedom. And so I think you can understand, if Augustine's right, you can understand America by seeing how freedom is doing today compared with the way it was set up. And that's the argument of the book. The framers had as their most daring idea the idea that you could found a free republic that could stay free forever. Now, that's incredibly daring because no one had done it. But the tragedy is the modern Americans have abandoned or just neglected the framers system. That's what the book's about. Interesting. Now, you open the book by asking the question, what kind of people do you Americans think you are? What kind of society do you want America to be? This is now the central question Americans must answer. Why is this the central question that we must answer? Well, if you think of a lot of issues like, say, abortion or currently the government surveillance or something like the health care debate, you should always begin by saying, in a democracy, in a free republic, we the people, we have to ask, what kind of a people do we want to be? And then answer whatever the political question is in the light of that. You run through the whole questions of freedom in the light of that question, and you come down to some very sobering conclusions. Well, what are some of the conclusions that we come to? I mean, what did they envision for our nation, and what it has it become, as you have observed? If you think you want to set up a free country that will stay free forever, that is incredibly daring, as I say. Well, the question is, how do you do it? Because it hasn't been done. First, freedom spirals down into permissiveness and then license and anarchy. Second, freedom often gives such a sense of the wonder of freedom that people want to keep themselves safe, and then they surround themselves with so much security that they lose their freedom. And thirdly, freedom is so precious to people, they'll do anything to fight for it. And so what they do is fight for it in ways that contradict freedom. And I would argue that America's done all of those. But the main argument of the book is that the way the framers set it up, that freedom could be sustained. And just take that funny word, sustain. I mean, everything today has to be sustainable sustainable capitalism, sustainable environment, sustainable development, you name it. It's a vogue word today. But no Americans ask, how is freedom to be sustained? And, of course, that's the central issue that faces the republic now, because we've abandoned the framers' way. Yes, you state in your book that freedom is far more difficult to sustain than most Americans realize. And what does it take for a nation to keep its freedom? Well... They had a very daring system. They didn't give it a name, unfortunately. But uh, Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, the great Frenchman who came here in the 1830s, he called it the habits of the heart. But he argued American freedom is not sustained by geography. It's not sustained by law. It's sustained, finally, by the habits of the heart. Now, my own term for that is I call it the golden triangle of freedom. And you can put it like this, the way the framers did. Freedom requires virtue. That's the first leg of the triangle. Virtue requires faith of some sort. That's the second leg of the triangle. And the third leg, the daring one, faith of any sort requires freedom. There's no established official government faith. Now, you put that together. Freedom requires virtue, which requires faith, which requires freedom. And like the recycling triangle, it goes on forever ad infinitum. 
goes round and round and round. Now, that system, which you can see throughout the frame of speeches and writing, for example, George Washington's farewell address, most modern Americans don't even know it, and many today, or at least some today, openly oppose it. But the net effect is there's no current system for making freedom sustainable, and the simple logic of that is it won't be sustained. You know, you state in your book, the greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. Could you unpack that a little more? What do you mean exactly mean by that? Well, that's the paradox. You know, people say, they're quoting, you know, a rose is a rose is a rose, Gertrude Stein. And they say, well, freedom is freedom is freedom. Simple as that. No, no, it's not. And one of the paradoxes of freedom is that freedom is its own worst enemy. You can unpack that in various ways, but the two deepest points of the paradox are first, that to sustain freedom, you need not only the structures of freedom, which are the law, the constitution, and so on, you need the spirit of freedom, the habits of the heart, in the citizens. Now, you can put in the law, you can have the constitution put in 1787, 1791, and that stays there forever. But the habits of the heart have to be in every single generation, and they have to be passed down from parents to children, from teachers to students, and if the generation ever comes when they're lost, freedom goes. That's the political part of the conundrum. The moral part of the conundrum is even deeper still. The freedom needs to be ordered, and the only restraint that's appropriate to freedom is self-restraint. Obviously, if restraint comes from the outside, it's not freedom. But self-restraint is precisely what freedom undermines when it flourishes. So freedom never lasts. We're in a fallen world. You know, you talked about that triangle that's needed to sustain freedom, virtue, faith, mm -hmm. and eventually freedom. Well, what is the ultimate basis for virtue and faith? Well, the framers didn't establish a national established faith, as you had in Europe, where the Christian faith was the established church, and so on. They didn't, they disestablished faith, but they counted on the fact that virtue required faith, but they were not to say which one. Now they're quite open about the fact that they were cherry about secular faith, because if you ask, why the inspiration to have faith or virtue? What is the content of virtue? And what are the sanctions if someone is not virtuous? Well, secularism can't provide any good answers to that. So the framers are quite clear. They gave freedom of conscience to atheists and to everyone. Freedom of conscience was for everybody. But they were very, very cheery about a government of atheists. And the reason is pretty simple. Well, put it in today's terms. People like Christopher Hitchens say you don't need God to be good, and of course that's right. As Christians would say, people are made in the image of God even if they don't acknowledge God. You don't need God to be good in that sense. But there has never yet been a big nation with an atheist way of life that has flourished and been free. And if you look at the big atheist nations, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, German Nazism, National Socialism, and Chinese Communism, all of them have been disastrous in the implications for human dignity and human freedom. So the challenge to atheists today, especially to the new atheists, can they really create the prospect of a free society that has 
no religious underpinnings. And I would say, on the evidence of scripture and the evidence of history, they cannot do it. Uh, explain that some more for us. Why is it that atheism, you can't have freedom in an atheist kind of government? Well, just ask how they have freedom at all. Take Sam Harris, who's one of the new atheists today. He openly says, freedom is an illusion. So you look at the great atheist regimes, and you can see that either reductionism, determinism, or collectivism has featured in all of them, and they've been absolutely disastrous for human dignity. Now, Steven Pinker at Harvard, he's recently written what he calls the uselessness of dignity, or Ruth Macklin wrote a famous essay, The Stupidity of Dignity. Uh, to me, that's absolutely extraordinary. In other words, a generation ago, humanists were saying, well, Christians gave us a high view of human dignity because they said people made the image of God. And we don't believe in God, but we still have a high view of human dignity. And now that is rapidly eroding. And you have what are called the anti-humanist atheists, people like the philosopher John Gray, who wrote Straw Dogs, who say, like Peter Singer, we're just animals. And we cheat by saying there's a special dignity to humans, because we no longer believe there's a God, or humans are made in the image of God, so we can't claim they have that special dignity any, any longer. So what we're seeing right now, this generation, is the disappearance of a high view of dignity, and also the disappearance of a solid grounding for freedom. And both of those will be disastrous for democracy. And so what you're saying is that without God, there really is no basis or foundation for a morality or the value of human life. But it is faith in well, God uh, that gives us the basis for that. Is that what you're saying? An adequate basis, yes. No, as you're many individual atheists, so noble, high-minded, and so on. There's no question of that. With compassion, with love, and etc. And as we'd say, the reason why is to make the image of God, although they don't acknowledge it. But what we're talking about is a society of atheists, and that's what I think history would warn us is not possible. So we're back to the framers again. You ask, how did the framers hope that that freedom would go from generation to generation? Well, they understood that there were several, there were three nurturing institutions. There was the family, the deepest one. There was the faith community, and there was the school. Now, if you think of those three things, which are the nurturing institutions for American democracy, for American freedom, for American values at large, all three of those are in trouble today. The family breaking down, the faith communities weaker than ever, and the schools with no civic education, and incredibly mediocre education in general. Now, therefore, you're saying that faith in God is essential for a virtuous society that can practice civility and self-restraint and conduct itself morally towards one another. You're saying faith in God is essential for a society. Yep, but it sounds simplistic and rude just to say that. In other words, we have to enter and engage the debate and say what matters to free and open societies. Things like dignity, personal liberty, individual responsibility. Right, so you're saying atheists can live moral lives. There's many good atheists who live good moral lives, but what you're saying is the basis of their morality is lacking. Exactly. On the one hand, the basis is lacking, and on the other hand, while the individual can do it, 
it is yet to be proved that a big, large society can do it. That's America's challenge. What, three million people at the time of the revolution? And even then, Madison raises the question, how do you sustain freedom for a democracy that, one, is large? In other words, Greek democracy, there were 6,000 people in the city-state of Athens. One has to be a large country, and two, it has to be a lasting freedom. And they're very t- tough. Of course, today, America's over 300 million people. I see. Now, you state that the faith community is weaker than ever. What do you mean by that? Well, our churches. How can more than 80% of Americans still identify themselves as Christian, and yet tiny groups like gays, lesbians, and others have far more cultural influence than we do? The simple fact is the salt has lost its saltiness in America. Now we could give it various names. It's called a crisis of cultural authority. The simple fact is, in the lives of many, many Christians, sadly, faith has lost its authority, what called its binding address, and it's become a mere preference. It's very soft. It's just one among many reasons. But you can see the Christian faith in America is in a kind of meltdown at the moment, and certainly evangelicalism too. What does evangelicalism mean? No one's quite sure. Anyone can say something new. It used to be clearly defined by certain beliefs, such as a high view of Scripture, and so on. But that's no longer the case. I see. Uh, why is it? I mean, why do we find, as evangelicals, why do we find ourselves in this condition? Is it the, the preaching, the teaching, ideas of the culture? What do you assess as how we came to this position? Well, it's hard to put it in a sentence or two. My own argument is, it's in another book called The Last Christian on Earth, an argument it is that much of the American church is more shaped by the advanced modern world than it really is by the gospel. And so we're in a kind of cultural captivity. If you look at the church just at the time of the Renaissance, just before the Reformation, um, one of great Oxford scholars, Thomas Limica, was given a copy of the gospels by a priest who was a friend, and you know lay people didn't have the gospels in those days, only the clergy did read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and made the famous remark, either these are Gospels or we're not Christians. In other words, the gap between the Gospels and the behavior of the Church at that time was extreme. And certainly, the same is true today. Well, you said that we're being shaped by the culture. What are the dominant ideas of the culture, then, that threaten or oppose the faith community? Well, Pat, they're not only the dominant ideas. In other words, ideas are often hostile and clear. So if I said relativism or humanism, you know, the average Christian could smell that sort of idea at 100 yards away. But if you look at the impact on consumerism, where nothing is true or right or wrong, but everything's a matter of choice, and so we have the church of your choice, and the the disappearance of the word a worship service, and it's become a worship experience. And hopping and shopping, you don't like the music, you don't like the preaching, go down the road to another one that you do like, and so on. And that sort of mentality. And the same is true now of doctrines. And so you take people like Rob Bell, who no longer believe in the biblical view of hell, or the biblical view of homosexuality. And everything now today is a soft client knows that you can squeeze the way you like, everything's... And that's the product of consumerism on the church. 
not of any hostile idea. You know, that's fascinating. You mentioned consumerism. Exactly what do we mean when we say consumerism? Well, consumerism is the whole world produced by a consumer culture. We assess life uh, by how we're doing in terms of goods. Veni, vidi, visa. Uh, when the going gets tough, the tough goes shopping. All these little phrases we have. You know, we're in a world where, say, our shopping malls are the real cathedrals of today, not the cathedrals or the churches of the past. The shopping malls, and you can see we've exchanged the good life, as people would have put it 2,000 years ago, we've changed the good life for what's called a life with goods. And, of course, underneath that is a huge accumulation of debt, a huge accumulation of junk, and a huge accumulation of stuff, and a whole changed attitude to life. You judge it by the accumulation of stuff that you've bought, and so on. This is the modern world of consumerism. Now, there are many, many problems. It's often said that if the whole world were to live like America lives, you'd need several planets just to sustain it. In other words, once again, it's unsustainable. But Christians should have seen early on, because, you know, the Protestant ethic was hard work, saving, thrift, generosity. John Wesley Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And in the 1920s, when consumerism started to come in, many of the advertisers and so on were absolutely brazenly open, but they were out to undermine the Christian ethic which had shaped America in the past. And sadly, Christians never objected, and we're part of the consumer culture along with everyone else. And now we're beginning to pay for it. Well, now that we're absorbed in the consumer culture. What do you suggest, and how can we change the situation? Well, in that area, as in many others, we've got to go back to the Scriptures. You know, either these are not the Gospels, or we're not Christians. Can we be really living the way of the Gospel, and yet be so weak as we are in American culture? We can't be. So we should have people ransacking the Gospel and say, are we living faithfully to our Lord? and then, by God's grace, seeking to live faithfully according to the way that's outlined in the Scriptures. Put simply, I, I talked about the advanced modern world. The modern world makes evangelism easier, but discipleship harder. In other words, in the modern world, more people are more open and searching for new things, because of consumerism and so on, than ever before. So modern people are described as conversion-prone. But discipleship, which Nietzsche was right about here, described as a long obedience in the same direction. Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. That's harder. To really integrate your faith for the whole of life today and not live a fragmented life, that's really tough and difficult today. Right. It seems like we have two extremes sometimes. You have those who totally want to separate from the culture and then you have those that are totally indulged in the culture. And I think striking that balance is very difficult, we find in our time, isn't it? Oh, you put it well. You know, the two extremes are to be in the culture and of it, worldly, or to be not in it, not of it, and so otherworldly when no earthly use. Our Lord calls us to be in it, but not of it. Now, that's tough. 
Now, that requires, first, an engagement, but secondly, a discernment. What is the culture? Where is it good? Where is it bad? And thirdly, the ability to make a grand refusal. Wherever the way of the world is different from the way of our Lord, we say no. And the trouble is, in many, many areas today, the church has lost the capacity to say no. And the American church is huge, numerically. But it's pathetically weak culturally, and the central reason is it's profoundly worldly. It's not very different from the world. So not only do we have to know the Word of God, but we also need to know the culture and the ideas of the culture that compete against the message of the gospel. Isn't that what you're saying? Uh, yes. yes, absolutely. Again, Pat. This concludes part one of Pat's interview with Christian scholar Dr. Oz Guinness on his latest work, A Free People's Suicide. If you missed any part of this study, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire message and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's ministry, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org so that we may continue to present fine biblical teaching from men like Dr. Oz Guinness. Join us again next week for part two of Pat's interview with Dr. Oz Guinness, right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh.